Hello and welcome to episode two of the Curiosilus podcast. This episode, Will and I are joined by one of our school friends, Rob Coots. Hi, Rob. Hi, Lich. Thanks very much for, for joining us. Yeah. No worries. Very happy to. Rob, as I said, was at school with us and actually came on a school trip with us to Greece. Indeed, yeah. Had, we, we had a, a good time romping around Athens. Yeah. A lot of romping, but after yeah. leaving school, Rob sadly went to the dark side, and he's currently at Oxford, where he's studying Apparently. classics. But we have called a truce for this evening to hear Rob's words of wisdom, and our main topic of discussion is going to be on classical reception. Now, let me just briefly explain what classical reception studies is. Essentially looking into the portrayal and representation of stuff from the ancient world, particularly Greek and Latin literature, but also visual and physical uh, material culture, ideas, myths, just about everything, and the way that these things are transmitted and translated, interpreted and generally represented. The field has become more popular and more legitimate in recent years, especially after the turn of the millennium, as it's started to be recognised as a more rigorous discipline of uh, classical studies. So today we're each going to lead the charge in our own little area. I'm going to kick us off by looking at the reception of Homer in antiquity, and that will be followed by myself, who will be looking at the political philosophies of Plato and Aristotle, uh, not just in antiquity, but also further beyond. And I'll be doing a quick scan of the reception of Virgil through the ages, throwing in also, if we have time, a bit of folktale theory in classics, which should be quite fun. Exciting stuff. Hmm. Well, I'll launch into the great Homer, the font of amazing literature that uh, sparked, well, Western creativity in literature, I suppose. And I'll be looking at the reception of his two great works, in particular the Iliad and the Odyssey, as they were received in antiquity. Now, I knew that Homer was always a big cheese, but as soon as I started reading into this, I didn't realise quite how deep the obsession with Homer ran in the ancient world. And this was quickly made apparent to me in a, in a book I was reading by Richard Hunter, who's part of the classics faculty at Cambridge. And he says, Any attempt, however, to survey the ancient, even just the Greek, reception of Homer is bound to end up as just that, namely a survey. And the material is so rich that it would be a very long survey indeed. So I will try not to uh, ramble too long. There is great potential to write books and books on Homer. So I won't look at the most frequently studied areas, namely imperial epic from the Roman period. Homer is also uh, runs through Greek drama and Hellenistic poetry an awful lot as well. But to be a bit more curious, I will try and look into some of those aspects which are testament to the very deep percolation of Homer through ancient society in some perhaps unexpected places. Firstly, though, to introduce the ancient obsession with Homer is what is known as the Homeric question, whereby basically everyone just questions everything about Homer. Did he really exist? Did he compose everything himself? When was he around? All sorts of theories. Do you, do you guys know where Homer was from? 
Oh. Is it from Asia Minor? I actually, was it Halicarnassus? Wow. I actually wrote an essay wow. on this, embarrassingly. I can't remember. Uh, <laughs> well, it could have been either of those options. And in antiquity, an awful lot of towns basically claimed Homer as their own. Athens, Chios, Colophon, Chimae, Ios, Rhodes, Smyrna were among some of the most persistent and perhaps believable examples. But there are also some more exotic claims emerging over time, such as Egypt, Ethiopia, Babylon, and somehow even Rome. Of course. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, I, I read an interesting article called Was Homer a Roman? Which basically concludes that it's a, uh, a fairly preposterous theory, which this chap Aristodemus of Nysa put forward. But there's, uh, there's no evidence that anybody else supported Aristodemus's theory. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't even need to pay too much attention to him. Anyway, Homer basically was everywhere in the ancient world, especially in the Greek world as it expanded especially with the campaigns of Alexander, who took Homer with him, quite literally, as I believe he took uh, an annotated copy of the Iliad that belonged to his tutor, Aristotle. He slept with it under his pillow or something, I think. Under his pillow, yeah. Yeah. Some serious devotion. So Homer ended up pretty much everywhere. And partly because of this, the fact that no one knew where he came from led to this sort of almost divine omnipresence, this mysterious aura surrounding him, and he was almost treated as a god. And in fact, in some places, cults actually emerged in worship of him, such as in Alexandria, and there's a, there are several famous reliefs of the apotheosis of Homer, where he's uh, crowned by time and the oikumenaire, or the inhabited world, and basically sat on a par with Zeus, because he was so awesome. What kind of time was that? Was that quite late or was this very much well just this these cults of homer oh um so the cult in alexandria was established by ptolemy the fourth pharaoh and i can't actually tell you when he was around ptolemy the fourth would have been it might be third century uh, yeah third or second century bc okay one of those two something like that yeah, mm. but this this seemed to last for ages. Because... And he reappeared in the popular American television show. Way, wow. <laughs> <laughs> that's cheap, really cheap. <laughs> I mean, I had to go in there somehow, didn't I? Yeah, of course. Anyway, so so ancient Homer was basically regarded as so omnipresent that he was actually likened to ocean, which was the sort of slightly unknown mass of water that surrounded everything. It's the source of all rivers and seas, and writers tended to liken Homer to this unknown but vast quantity. And on the shield of Achilles from the Iliad, in case you don't know, uh, is described in Book 18, and it basically has depictions of essentially happy things in life. Marriage, civic life, festivals, singing, dancing, and it's surrounded by ocean which runs around the outermost rim of the shield. And human life was essentially conceived in this sort of period as almost um, a binary between war and peace, pleasure and pain. So there's the Iliad, which is surrounded by Homer as an author. But there's also the contents of the shield, civic life, which shows the pleasure 
and peace, which is surrounded by ocean, which is also Homer. So basically, people construed Homer as encompassing everything. He's everything. Just the font of civilization, life, literature, culture. Weren't there ancient people who thought that um, you could learn anything you wanted to by reading Homer? Yes, pretty much. Wouldn't surprise me. (laughs) Yeah, lots of writers thought that philosophy stemmed from Homer and read Homer for sort of didactic functions to learn how to be a good ruler and things Mm. like that. So people really respected what he wrote. Slight digression, if you'll allow me to indulge, now that we're on the shield of Achilles. I'd always assume that the shield of Achilles was some vehicle for Homer to basically carry out a balancing act between war and peace, pain and pleasure, through the Iliad, and uses it as a sort of ekphrasis vehicle to basically give a long description of nice stuff. Um, But in my second year, I was reading a book about the Macedonian royal tombs at Vergina. As you do. At the Macedonian capital, and they found in a tomb that was likely Philip II, father of Alexander the Great. Big man. They found his tomb, and they found the remains of a Chris Elephantine shield that is made out of gold and ivory. And on this shield were incredibly intricate carved figures, and it basically showed that something like a shield of Achilles could actually have existed which was not something I'd really appreciated before. I thought you were about to suggest that that was the shield of Achilles. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, they probably wanted it to be the shield of Achilles. I'm sure they did. I'm sure Alexander would have claimed it. The Macedonian royals absolutely loved him. And in fact, there were other bits in the tomb of Philip which were really closely mirroring Homer. Inside the tomb was this incredible gold box called a Larnax which contained Philip II's bones wrapped in purple cloth, which is pretty amazing, an amazing discovery. But this is almost identical to the funerary practices applied to Hector and to Achilles. So in the Iliad, I'll read a line or two from Hector's funeral. Then they laid what they had gathered up, that is the bones, in a golden casket and wrapped this about with soft robes of purple which is identical to what they did for Philip II. Really close parallel. Macedonian rules, totally obsessed. Even in death, they can't can't get rid of Homer. Anyway, I said I'd look at some of the more surprising places where Homer pops up in antiquity. You didn't just have to be from the educated, learned elite to have come across Homer. Homer dominated education, and especially the early books of the Iliad were read ubiquitously. And this trickled down to Homer appearing on all sorts of funerary inscriptions, commemorating dead wives. Husbands would liken their their dead wife to Penelope as a shorthand for commemorating her merits. And males would often try and liken themselves, unsurprisingly, to Achilles to uh, demonstrate their, their beauty and youth strength, valour, that sort of thing. These were often um, slightly butchered lines of Homer that had been lifted and inserted into the funerary inscriptions of common people. But it didn't just have to be in a funerary setting where Homer could appear. And I just want to treat you all to a rather interesting epic association. This comes from Ephesus from the 4th century AD, and it was a welcome sign painted onto a latrine at a gymnasium so already an intriguing place to find Homer yeah. mm. let me let me just read you how this welcome sign translates 
move a wiper with your foot and lift it in the fist of your hand, cough from the depths of your chest, and with a shake of your whole body, delight your heart with a shit very deep within. Let not your stomach ever trouble you when you come to my house. And so you may be <laughs> okay. wondering uh, what all this is about. Yeah, I... um, but essentially, the, the Greek of this inscription from the toilet lifts phrases from the Iliad and the Odyssey. And there are lots of parallels as well. So lifting, lifting the, uh, the poo wiper, they use the same terminology as Ajax and Hector when they're exchanging a barrage of boulders, throwing them at each other in Iliad Book 7. So it's just a and parody, essentially. Lifts... Yeah. Yeah, essentially. Because yeah. um, then Hector lifts a stone and smashes the Greek gates uh, in Book 12 of the Iliad. And then, of course, in, in the Odyssey, you have the Cyclops uh, breaking off part of the mounting and hurling it after Odysseus's ship. So we have this sort of amusing contrast of lifting up epic rocks and lifting up a wiper in the latrine. And uh, clients at the latrine, I suppose, are invited to think that what, what they're about to do is a heroically epic action. Wonder if you fit in the Grace and Circling Ocean metaphor into that. <laughs> I'm <way>. sure. <laughs> Also, though, like in, in the Homeric epics, you have all these amazing fighters, these heroes, who also spend a lot of their time banqueting and dining, but you never actually hear of them going to the loo. I wonder why. You're suggesting this is a flaw of Homer, that he didn't narrate Achilles excusing himself. This didn't, didn't depict real life, you know. It's actually a conspiracy theory that Nard never had to go to the loo. They were just that yeah. heroic. <laughs> <laughs> Superhuman. Yeah. But yeah, so, so Homer cropped up all over the place. And it wasn't just on toilets or funerary inscriptions. Uh, if, if you'd just built a nice public building or, or done something particularly fantastic, lots of occasions where people erected some sort of inscription and lifted part of Homer because he was just everywhere. And epic phraseology was clearly the thing if you wanted to make an awesome inscription. So, yeah, Homer was basically this frame of reference for so much of Greek life. He dominated in education... He was on all sorts of funerals, toilet entrances, you name it. Even the advent of Christianity didn't put an end to his to the pagan writings of Homer. And particularly, actually, the episode of the Sirens. So when Odysseus tells his crew to bind him to the mast so he can listen to the mm. sirens. This was used quite a lot in Christian writings as a sort of equivalent for Christians to avoid bodily temptations and that kind of thing. Um, that Odysseus was this model of a man avoiding the corrupting pleasures on his way to his real home, which I suppose for the Christians, would, of course, would be on their way up to heaven. Yeah, interesting. So there you have it. A, li- a little dip into the fact that Homer was just about everywhere and ancient people were just totally obsessed. And they'd try and shoehorn him in wherever they could. Yeah, and Dionysius of Harlequinassus wrote in a letter to Pompey. Through Homer, all culture, and finally philosophy itself, enters our lives. So as the font of philosophy, I think that is a neat segue onto Will's section, as he's going to yes. chat to us about some of these bits of philosophy, what came after Homer, and how they went down. Yes, so I will be talking about two other heavyweights of the classical world, Plato and Aristotle. I'll be trying to stick to their political philosophies, because... We could be here all night otherwise if I was going to be talking about a whole host of other philosophical areas. So for those of you who don't know, 
Plato and Aristotle were closely linked. Aristotle was supposedly Plato's pupil, and before that, Plato was Socrates' pupil. So those three great philosophical titans are all closely intertwined. But they did share, well, they did have some differing views on uh, politics and how to structure the ancient Greek city-state. So I'll start with Plato first in chronological order. So Plato sets out most, well, not most, but his most famous work regarding political philosophy is the Republic. And the gist of his political philosophy in there is that we need philosophers as kings. I will quote a short excerpt where he says, Until philosophers rule as kings, or those who are now called kings and leading men genuinely and adequately philosophize, that is, until political power and philosophy entirely coincide, while the many natures who at present pursue either one exclusively are forcibly prevented from doing so, cities will have no rest from evils, nor, I think, will the human race. So... Plato had some pretty strong words to say about the rulers of, of cities in his time. Yeah, I think that's actually why he supposedly wasn't a fan of Homer, because everyone went yeah. back to Homer yeah. thinking, oh, we need to listen to what he's saying. But he wasn't a philosopher, so I think that's yes. why Plato mm. didn't really like it. And Plato also famously didn't like art and poetry. He would ban it from his ideal city. Such an uncultured man. I, mm. I know, he, he was... A quick sidestep into some other philosophies. This is based on the forms, this the idea of the forms, which is to a to a newcomer is quite difficult to wrap your head around. But he I will do my I will endeavour to do my best to try to try and explain it. Plato essentially, from what I understand, and I may be wrong, but it's philosophy, so I'm gonna go with it. He thought that the idea of something so if we take a chair, for example, he thought the idea of the perfect chair is more real than the chair I'm sitting on right now. Forms were a greater what, form. So of... an imagined chair is more real than your chair? Yeah, so forms are like a greater form of reality, if that makes sense. And this can be applied to abstract ideas like the good or the whole purpose of the Republic is to talk about what is justice, which segues into how you establish justice. Well, let's look at politics and cities and states. And the gist of this is the form of the good, which he thought was the best form of all the forms, I think, because it encompassed lots of other forms. It's some, it's some wacky stuff. It's quite, you know, this is one of many other ideas that he has. One of the others is that you never learn anything. It's always you're recollecting yeah. things because we're reincarnated and we're remembering things from other life when people prompt us. Yeah. Little things like that. He's got some left of field ideas. Yeah. So he, this was the gist of his philosophy and he thought that philosophers but obviously only the types of platonic philosophers that adhered to his type of philosophy were the most suitable people for running cities because they knew what being good was and they knew what justice was and they knew how to give this to a political entity mm. in terms of the details behind what made up the ideal city he did actually give some pretty detailed instructions saying Philosophers need to go undergo 20 years or 10 years of training in mathematics and governorship in order to become qualified, essentially. And he also had some weird ideas about how all women should be shared as baby-making machines and you shouldn't actually know who the father is because they should all just belong to the state. But he also did have... He, I think he did say that women were entirely capable of becoming philosophers too, so someone mm. taken as a bit of a proto-feminist in a pretty misogynistic Greek world. Um, Aristotle has some different things to say about that, but I'll come to that later. So, yes, and then 
his his influence on philosophy politically was pretty impressive. He didn't get a lot of immediate attention. I think it's fair to say, being based in Athens, he hated democracy too. He saw it as the rule of the mob, a massive prevention of attaining this form of the good and justice. But his philosophy persisted throughout antiquity. In the, well, after the turn of the millennium, these neo-Platonic schools were founded. So I think the original academy was shut down by Sulla when that came under Roman occupation, but there were certain neo-Platonists who continued and a Neoplatonic academy which actually shut down under Justinian the Great in the 6th century AD. Some famous philosophers of that school were Plotinus and Porphyry, who continued to spread his ideas. I've heard of those Yeah, mm. and they are closely intertwined with Christianity. A lot of early Christian writers saw Plato and his school of philosophy as being most similar to Christian philosophy. But they could, if you take the form of the good, you could say that's God which was quite a convenient thing to say he is the perfect form of the good and from him Mm. all these forms of justice come from. So it was quite easy to reconcile his philosophy with the Christians. Now to go back to Aristotle, he had some criticisms of Plato's political philosophy. He didn't like how women were shared. He also believed it was important that there were familial ties and parental affection and upbringing and Charles shouldn't just be number 467,000 to the state perhaps a bit more human in that sense. And he he had some weird ideas about the city-state being prior in nature to the household. He saw, he saw the household as like a tiny political entity, and many of them made the city. And the way he described this was, if you imagine a human body, the, the city is the whole body, and maybe just the finger or the arm is like a household or a suburb. Mm. But if you cut off, if, you, if the body stops working, all the, all the other parts stop working. So he saw the city as vital part of human life. You get that in Tudor times, don't you, with the whole body politic thing? Yeah. Um, it's an illustration of some king. Yeah, it's like the Leviathan, Thomas Hobbes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so Aristotle, he, and similar to Plato, he had a massive influence on political philosophy. And while there were no neo-Aristotelian schools, as far as I'm aware, he founded the Lyceum, similar to Plato's Academy, which continues and continues still today to be massively influential he also believed that man is by nature a political animal a famous quote but he also believed that certain men were naturally born to be slaves so he thought it was perfectly justifiable for greeks to go to war against barbarians and enslave them and that was morally acceptable which does not fly in today's market rightly so we've come a little way yeah i think it's fair to say times have changed for the better but yeah, you can see that these guys, they have some very good, interesting insights into politics, some perhaps not so acceptable ideas. A little outdated. Yes. But like Plato, Aristotle wrote on a whole bunch of other ideas. He famously wrote, so the politics is what I've referenced, but then the ethics, the Nicomachean ethics. And then he wrote a whole host of other treatises on minor works, like on animals, on metaphysics, on physics. It's a real natural scientist. And... What I didn't realise, I always thought that Plato was the big dog of the two. A 20th century philosopher, Alfred North Whitehead, said, The safest general characterisation of the European philosophical tradition is that it consists of a series of footnotes to Plato. So I thought Plato is clearly number one. Seems to have quite a lot Mm -hmm. to him. And the understudy Aristotle had some cool ideas but never quite achieved the level of fame that Plato reached. But one thing that shocked me was that 
after the fall of Rome until the Renaissance, the only Greek, only Platonic dialogue in the Greek that was in Western Europe was the Timaeus. No other Platonic work, the Republic, just didn't exist to Western Europe in the Greek. Uh, That's mad. Yeah. So how did the other ones survive nowadays then? the Muslim world. So the Muslim world Uh, took a lot of Greek dialogues in the Islamic golden era at the turn of the first millennium, translated them into Arabic. And then it was when Constantinople fell that a lot of Byzantines took these texts, whether they were Muslim or in the Greek and harboured in Constantinople, took them west to Italy. I think the Medicis were big fans. Cosmo got a lot of platonic dialogues going. And yeah, and then the Renaissance really was a big thing. Aquinas, just before the, the Renaissance, we know actually flirted quite a bit with Aristotle. He he saw him as the first teacher and the philosopher. So if anything, Aristotle was actually the main guy and Plato was more unheard of until more recent times, which completely subverted my expectations. But yeah, there yeah. you have it. And yeah. Augustine was also pretty prominent. Obviously, he, he was much earlier, but his works amongst Christianity was very influential. And I think when Plato became more available and people saw how perhaps where Augustine's philosophy had come from, Plato slowly started to become more and more popular. wonder why so this was survived in the Western world. Plato. Yeah, it's, it's bizarre. I, don't, I, don't, I think yeah. it's because they just sacked off the Greek and because of the monastic stuff, they were just like, Latin, let's do Latin. Yeah, fair. But yeah, I, I had no idea that only mm. the Timaeus was in circulation. It's bizarre. Yeah. So it wasn't really until the 19th century that Plato was put on a par with Aristotle. Obviously, the world sort of changed from here on. Things really started to accelerate and crank up. And he kind of overtook Aristotle. And, well, certainly, I don't know about you guys, but for the duration of my education, I was taught a lot more Plato than Aristotle. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've been through lots of dialogues, but Aristotle I've hardly had to read in the Greek at all. And Plato's more fun to read, to be honest. Oh, yeah, definitely. In relative terms, obviously. He's so so much more easy (laughs) and stylistic, (laughs) which actually brings me on to an interesting point, which is perhaps why Aristotle's not so well taught these days, is that Cicero supposedly said that um, he described Aristotle's literary style as a river of gold. But for those of you who have read Aristotle, it's certainly not a river of gold. (laughs) And people speculate that the reason this is, is because all the works that survive of Aristotle that we have were in like a lecture format. So people speculate that these were his lecture notes that he would then bring to the Lyceum and talk to his pupils about. And he then, in his spare time, wrote books, like stuff in a, a more accessible and enjoyable manner like Plato and somehow in the course of history we lost the stuff that was supposed to be published but we preserved the boring dry lecture notes which is what survives to us today which is a cruel twist of fate but at least we have something but I wonder how much more Aristotle would be taught today if his his other works had survived rather than his dry lecture notes. But the Library of Alexandria, I'd say, is all yeah, always there. always yeah. blame the Library of Alexandria <laughs> for all our woes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, mm. disaster. Yeah, and to to get a bit more curiosalous, I found I found some quotes from Freddie Nietzsche, that that old that old guy. <laughs> He had, some, he had some scathing things to say about Plato. Um, he, he supposedly took a lot of his political philosophy from Aristotle, and I'm not going to go too in-depth. But for those of you who know a little bit about Nietzsche, he disliked Christianity rather strongly. And given Plato was the most similar of the classical philosophers to Christianity, he had some strong words to say about Plato too. Um, he had, so he attacked the idea of the good itself, 
and he saw um, Christianity and Christian morality essentially as Platonism for the masses, just dumbed down Platonism. One section of his book, The Twilight of the Idols, is called What I Owe to the Ancients, where he rambles about how much he loves the Greeks. And he has this very interesting comment to say about Plato, and he contrasts him with Thucydides, and I will read it now. He says, What do I love about Thucydides? What causes me to honour him more highly than Plato? He has the most comprehensive and most uninhibited joy in everything which is typical about humans and events, and he thinks that a little bit of good rationality is in each type. It is this which he seeks to uncover. He is a greater practical justice than Plato. He does not demean or belittle those people whom he doesn't like, or who have harmed him in his own life. On the contrary, he reads into and attributes to all things and people something great. Thus in him, the betrayer of man, that culture of the most impartial knowledge of the world, finds its last glorious flower, the culture which had in Sophocles its poet, in Pericles its statesman, in Hippocrates its physician, in Democritus its natural philosopher, which deserves to be baptised with the name of its teachers, the Sophists, and which from this moment of baptism unfortunately begins to become pale and ungraspable to us, for now we suspect that it must have been a very immoral culture, since a Plato and all the Socratic schools fought against it. The gist is that Nietzsche saw Plato as fleeing from reality. He took refuge in his forms and saw him as a coward who couldn't face up to the reality of the world. And he created his own little dreamy philosophy about imaginary things as a refuge and portrayed himself as being much better than these other people. Mm. Whereas reading Thucydides is a remedy to just engage in real terms, real events. An interesting take that I thought I'd throw yeah, it out there. I, yeah. Yes. I disagree quite strongly about that. He says these these one of those cynical things you can read. <laughs> wow. Well, I don't know. <laughs> but, you know I'm, I'm not the one coming up with that. That's that's just Nietzsche. But um, yeah, I mean, yeah. Who's Nietzsche to say? You know, it's not like he's a great philosopher or anything. No, no, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. <laughs> yeah. So, the, and this this continued. Like other philosophers had some strong things to say. Bertrand Russell criticised Aristotle quite a lot. Unlike Nietzsche, he said. Almost every serious intellectual advance has had to begin with an attack on some Aristotelian doctrine. He called Aristotle's uh. ethics repulsive, labelled his logic as definitely as antiquated as Ptolemaic astronomy, and he stated that these errors made it difficult to do historical justice to Aristotle until one remembered what an advance he made upon all of his predecessors. So I think it's fair to say that both Plato mm. and Aristotle have had their critics, both in ancient times and modern yeah. um, and yeah. which, depending on which one of the two you swing with, is up to you. Yeah. Get reading, folks. Interesting. Bertrand Russell didn't like Aristotle, did he? Blimey. Not at all. <laughs> Very damning indictment. Right, Rob, I think we're over to you. Indeed. Before I start on my one, um, do, do either of you have copies of Virgil's hand, the Aeneas? Uh, yeah, hang on. Let me, let, let me go. <laughs> yeah, I, I might do. Yeah. Okay, okay. Good. Virgil. Ah, same, same copy. Hey! Yeah. Oh, <laughs> same copy. Three's <laughs> hat trick. Yeah, cool. Right, so um, it's over to you now, Rob. Treat us to a bit of Virgil. What have we got in store? Um, so I'm going to do a quick scan, firstly, of Virgil Through the Ages. And obviously, like Homer, this is quite a hard topic to cover in a short space of yes, time. Yes, you can know. spend an awful lot of time doing this. Exactly. So I'm going to pick out a few, you know, so a quick highlight reel of, of Virgil through the ages. So I'm not going to go through the ancient reception because that's less interesting, basically. I'm going to start in the 320s. So in a, in a speech of Constantine, the Assembly of Saints, 
we get the first idea of the well, first time really that Virgil is brought into kind of Christian ideals. So what happens here is that Constantine draws the link between Eclogue 4, Virgil Eclogue 4, which talks about the coming of a child who will usher forth a new golden age. Um, I wonder who that's and, from. And the coming of Jesus, which is quite a, an interesting one. I mean, the identity of the child itself is, is much debated in the Eclogue. So, you know, there's always scope for saying that uh, it's prophetic somehow. Is is I think usually associations made with Augustus, but there are other associations made. And it's particularly interesting because uh, the poem talks about the returning of the Wurgo, who I believe is identified with a goddess who's usually identified with justice, Astraea, or something like that. And uh, yeah, so, so basically she, she's considered a goddess who's a bit like represents justice, um, who departed from the world, and um, now she's coming back with the birth of this child. So again, obviously you can draw a parallel between, between that and the Virgin Mary. So that's a nice sort of, you know, vignette of Virgil, Christianity. We then get a nice, nice little bit, which I found very interesting looking into this. I don't know if I, either of you heard of the Sorte's Virgiliani. No. Can't say I have. No. Well, so the way this works, this, this is what I wanted you to get a copy of Virgil. I'm equipped yep. with Virgil. I'm not quite sure how this custom developed, but essentially, at some point in this, all this the study of Virgil through the ages, people thought it'd be quite a good idea if they wanted to work out something about their future to get a copy of Virgil and flip through randomly and put their finger down on a random bit, and that would tell them something about Ooh, their that's future. that's a fun game. Oh, God. So, for instance, I've just opened book six, but if not, no strength will prevail against it, and hard steel will not be able to hack itself. I think that's referring to the golden branch, which, mm. yeah, which Aeneas eventually does manage to get off with some difficulty. Ah. So, so, good I things to come for you, Rob, after some serious strife. Exactly, in fortune cookie yeah. fashion. I have challenges ahead, but I will overcome them. There's quite a lot at stake here. I'm planning to avoid book four. So, Lidge, why don't you have a go? <clears throat> okay, I've, I've opened up book eight. Meanwhile, when his herd had grazed its fill, and the son of Amphitryon was moving them out of pasture and preparing to go on his way, the cows began to low plaintively. Hmm. Book, book eight, did you say? Yeah, book eight. Oh, that, that's, that's Virgil's trip to the site of Rome, isn't it? Not Virgil's, Aeneas' trip to the site of Rome. Oh, when he meets a vandal. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Vander. yeah. Okay. Mm. okay so, so, so am I going to become a successful shepherd or something? Of cows, yeah. Yeah. Bright future ahead. Some some great beef farming to come. Lots to look forward to. Wow. Exactly, yeah. Indeed. How about you, Will? Right, let's see. This is a great game. <laughs> oh, God, I've picked book six. While they were speaking to one another, Dawn's rosy chariot had already run its heavenly course past the midpoint of the vault of the sky and they might have spent all the allotted time in talking but for Aeneas's companion. The Sibyl gave her warning in few words. Night is running quickly by Aeneas, and we waste the hours in weeping. This is where the way divides. On the right it leads up to the walls of Great Dis. This is the road we take to Elysium. On the left is the road of punishment for evildoers leading to Tartarus, the place of the damned. You have choice to make. Ooh. Yeah, I do have a very yeah. important choice to make. <laughs> Your eternal soul is on the line. <laughs> yeah. No pressure, then. No pressure. Well, I encourage everyone who obviously has a copy of Virgil on their bookshelf at home, have a little go at Rob's, mm. Rob's fun fortune-predicting game. Indeed. Have a listen in. So, so who, ca who came up with that? When was this? Well, so this thing is, is quite shady, um, where it comes from originally. I imagine it just at some point, some you know, Johnny of Malmesbury or something came up with the idea to, right. to do this. But um, the, the kind of first famous instance of it, as I understand it, 
is Charles I. Oh, what did he get? Now, he apparently did this. Stories vary, but the most famous one is that he did it in Oxford. You know, the dark side, that, that place that you can yeah. yeah. He did it in Oxford while he was being besieged by parliamentarian forces. And essentially, he decided to do this. Well, someone suggested that he do this kind of past the time, uh, which was a bit of a blunder, really, because I think they thought it would cheer him up. But really, what happened was that he opened it on book four, lines 6, 15 to 20, which is Dido's oh, curse on Aeneas. Um, <laughs> where she, she basically says... That's just typical. Yeah. Charles can't catch a break. Exactly. So she basically says, you'll die alone with none of your friends and be buried in the sand on a distant beach or something like that. So Charles... Pretty accurate, to be honest. Oh, yeah, well... It was never going to yeah. go well from then on, wasn't it? Exactly. I think the die was cast by that point. He was a pretty it, I, I, I think king, it was, but... yeah. Yeah. If only it had been predicted that he'd become a successful cow herder like me. I know, yeah, yeah, that would have been a nice, innocuous occupation. Yeah, Yeah. probably Um, Charles. Yeah, but no, there's a nice comment, well, not nice, I guess, but a comment that someone called John Aubrey, in his account of this, said that he heard from the sources in in the army that Charles was buried in the sand outside Windsor, so it did come true quite literally, apparently. Mm. Apparently also, Charles's friend, Viscount Falkland, did the same thing and had the same kind of luck. He, he got Book 11, lines 150 to 57, which is King Evander's speech when he encounters his son Pallas's dead body. Pallas having been killed in battle. Oh, God. And Falkland dies at the Battle of Newbury not long afterwards. So wow. there you have it. I mean, make of those stories what you will. But that's yeah. what, 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 what the power of Virgil throughout the ages. Exactly. So, yeah. Oh. That's so, an interesting stuff. Indeed. And then, yeah, I, I guess, as I'm, yeah, I'm jumping around a bit, but we then get quite a lot in more recent history. The reception of the Aeneid in particular is tied in a lot with uh, politics because Aeneid is taken to justify the Augustan regime, at least it's usually taken in that way, and just the whole, whole ideology of it justifies kind of imperial and monarchic powers. And what's quite interesting is you get, in the 17th and 18th centuries, with the various revolutions going on, you get you start to get more criticism of Virgil, and you get a lot of, particularly in the English poets. Coleridge says, "If you take from Virgil his diction and meter, what do you leave him?" Shelley, Oof. indeed, Shelley um, didn't bother to visit Virgil's hometown of Mantua, most obviously, you know, the grand tour they all did. Yeah, and called Virgil a harmonious plagiary and miserable flatterer, <laughs> uh, which is. Quite condemning. John Pinkerton, why shall I be condemned to follow Virgil through all his feeble imitations of Homer? Cuts deep. Um, in the plan and conduct of the Aeneas, and says, May execration pursue his memory, who has placed a crown on the brows of a tyrant that were much too bright for the best of kings. Scathing. It is scathing. It is scathing. It, it, in the kind of really sort of stylish way that 17th, 18th century poets are scathing. Yes. <laughs> it's not just like he was really crap. It's like, you know. <laughs> It's they have to word their criticism just as good as Virgil worded his own poems. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. With that, anti-Augustinism kind of became a central element of, of political discourse in England um, around this time, particularly with uh, this whole thing of, um, it, yeah, it, it was used by the Whigs and, and the Tories and all that is a kind of, well, yeah, th- this approach was taken. The implication being that it was also criticism of established political systems. Yeah. It, of course, it wasn't all one-sided. There's John Dryden's famous translation of the Aeneid in 1697. Dryden saw Virgil as as heroic poetry's unrivaled exemplars, which is quite nice. And Pope really likes Dryden's translation. He says it's the most noble and spirited translation he knew of in any language, uh, which I guess suggests that he quite likes Virgil as well. He don't generally say that about translations if you hate the work. 
Yeah. <laughs> I see on the back it says I don't know if it's on your copies, but on mine it says Tennyson said it's the stateliest measure ever moulded by the lips of man. Exactly. So that's another another good um review yeah. from from an Englishman. There are a lot of good bits from Tennyson actually. He also talks about thou majestic in thy sadness, at the doubtful doom of humankind, all the charm of all the muses, often flowering in a lonely word. And yeah, wielder of the stateliest measures ever moulded by the lips of man. So yeah, and, and, and that actually, so you've touched on the next one, which is Virgil in the 19th and 20th centuries, uh, where, again, this kind of emergence of romanticism and all that brings back a resurgence in popularity, and, and particularly for growing empire as well in England. Yeah, Pax Britannica. Exactly. Yeah, and also, of course, you've got Napoleon, well, the Napoleons in France, and there's this Etudes of Virgil by Saint-Beuve, which talks about basically, if my French is right, pity, sensitiveness and profound kind of tenderness in Virgil. And I guess you could say that's part of a tradition which is more sympathetic to Virgil with the emergence of, of empire and, and the kind of yeah, autocratic regime in France, which of course looks back quite strongly to the classics. No Napoleon was like that. And I'm going to very quickly do, because there's just so much on this, but you've got, obviously, Virgil has great impacts in the two world wars, Interesting, after the formation of the League of Nations, after the First World War, kind of the focus on European unification means that the Aeneid comes to be seen as kind of a vindication of a world order. So again, we get a very positive interpretation of it um, mm. at that point. Like, for example, this chap, this German scholar, Heike, presented Virgil as, we talked about Virgil as the father of the West. But then, of course, we have the fascists who come along and ruin everything. Of course. With, with Virgil. So um, we've got Mussolini, Actually, it does talk about Virgil in a, well, unsurprisingly a positive way. But he, in a letter he wrote, he talks about how Virgil's in, in the soul of the Italian people because of his love of his country, his love of his countrymen. So again, an indication that he could be taken to support a kind of patriotic world order. And then Hitler had this idea of Hellenism, um, distorted idea of Hellenism, where everyone was kind of physically perfect and um, outdoing others. You know, he, he, saw, he saw the Germans as the inheritors of these quote-unquote Hellenic ideals and Virgil was was a part of this kind of classical idea that he had. So yeah and then into the 1960s in America you had this kind of subversive reading of Virgil which came against the background of the Vietnam War essentially. Kind of cynicism towards established systems of power and that kind of thing and this school of scholars included Adam Parry uh, Wendell Klaus and Michael Michael Putnam, they essentially were very critical of the imperialism in the Aeneas and, and almost they wanted to um they wanted to kind of find subversive overtones in Virgil. They wanted to find kind of um subversing Augustus's regime, which is why you have a lot of focus like for example, you know, at the end of book twelve of the Aeneas, you know, you've got Aeneas killing Turnus. That's taken as a kind of, you know, dark you know, he loses control it gives him to fur off it's not a not a glorious finish is it exactly yeah no. yeah, yeah. And, they, and they make a lot of that so yeah i've been rambling on for about virgil but i'll try and in the curiosalist spirit i'll do a quick bit on on folktale which i couldn't resist talking yeah, about good, today good and which is quite a fun little so essentially that this this fits into the perception theme because it's a way of approaching classical texts which emerged kind of in the 19th century with the collation of folk tales by the Grimm brothers in Germany and also by a chap called A.N. Afanasiev in Russia 50 years later. Uh, and essentially what so the study of folk tale tries to uses these works to categorize broadly 
story patterns in folktale. Folktale being these kind of oral traditions which are passed down and, it, I mean, a bit like Homer essentially, but more modern. And what Classicus tries to do is to take these categorizations and apply them to ancient works of literature. Now, brief notes on categorizations, it's quite fun <laughs> looking at how they do this. I've really only just scratched the surface, but there's a, a bit the OCD sites, um, the Classical Dictionary, where you've got two chaps, Arne and Thompson, who tried to, who were kind of the original categorizers, and they did this incredibly laboriously, to the extent that you have an example where they identify the category, quote, K1111.0.1, colon, learnings play fiddle, finger caught in cleft. So that is a <laughs> rather specific, a very specific story pattern. Yeah, which Arnon Thompson identifies. But basically, the, the kind of the seminal work on this is it, it's by someone called Vladimir Prop, who slimmed down the categories a bit more, which allowed people to kind of take a slightly more general approach and say, okay, you know, this category applies here to the Iliad, um, where you don't have any fingers being caught in clefts. And this is where the fun comes in for classicists. So for example, in the Iliad, uh, the abduction of Helen is like a, um, what's known as a quest story. It has a number of typical features. So you have someone absenting himself from home, often leaving behind some kind of order or suggestions, so that'd be Menelaus. The villain, in this case Paris, abducts someone. And I should add that I've got the prop functions listed here. So the villain abducts someone is prop function 8.1. The abduction leads to a lack or insufficiency of a person, I guess. Please to call for help from the dispatch for the hero. The hero goes to the whereabouts of the search. Um, so of course this is all the Trojan expedition. And then the, the resolution um, of, of the story through either force or cleverness or um, the intervention of a magical agent. Now there's a, a nice hypothesis which it says that the conforms this pattern. This chap called Uvo Holscher. And he draws the comparison to a Russian folktale and I I think this is the real name of it, this is what I found in the article anyway, called Frolka Stay at Home. And in this rather charming story, the three daughters of a king get carried off by a dragon. The king calls an emergency assembly and offers anyone who can go and fetch the daughters back some money. And three men undertake the task successfully. So you can see the parallels there between the, um, yep. the Trojan War story. Uh, you've also got a nice, um, there's a Scandinavian folktale, um, which is really clearly quite heavily influenced by Homer, where someone called King Nileus leaves behind his chamberlain Paris to guard his wife Ellen. Typical. Ah. <laughs> well, that's just plain. If he couldn't make just... it any more clearer. Exactly. It's um, execratic pla plagiarism, whatever the say, 18th century poets would say. <laughs> but yeah, um, but what, what's also quite fun about this is this guy suggests that the original story of the Trojan War centered around Odysseus. He was the original hero. And here's the great part, he, the magical being that he encountered was a, a horse that he used to leap over the Trojan walls. Okay. <laughs> so, I, I mean, again, make that what you will, but I think that's a rather nice way of looking at it, yeah. the origins of the story at least. So yeah, and, and there are other examples you can get of this. So for example, the idea of mitigated harm, where a character suffers under a curse, and this makes their fate predestined, but like it's sort of not all bad. So you've got Achilles, obviously, uh, Meliaga in the speech of Phoenix in Book Nine, who um, is cursed by his mother, but lays down his life for the city. And of course, the parallel we can draw with that is uh, Sleeping Beauty, who's cursed to prick her finger and fall asleep, and then but then wake up and it's all, all good. 
Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if you or any of the listeners can think of any other parallels, but I'm, I'm sure they're out there waiting to be discovered in that sense. I'll try and wrap this up quickly, but the Judgment of Paris finally is a um, is a really interesting one because that's like a lot of temptation motifs you get in in um, in folktale. So, um, well, actually, not just in folktale. In fact, Christ in the wilderness, there are parallels. He's offered three different temptations. Paris, he comes before three different goddesses who are, who yeah. are all offering temptations. Uh, there's this German story called the Water of Life, where three different brothers encounter the same dwarf separately. Two of them insult the dwarf when he asks them where they're going, but the third one's nice to him, so he gets rewarded. And again, all this I've been talking about is from a guy called Malcolm Davis, who I went to some lectures by in first year. Very interesting chap, and I've used his articles extensively. They're fascinating. He suggests that basically the use, quite jarring use of the verb nakeo, I insult, when the story of Paris is described in, in Book 24, The Judgment of Paris, he says that that derives from this folktale motif where people insult helper figures, but then someone else accepts their help. So yeah, that's a quick insight into that, and you know, interesting, worth investigating more of, I'd say. Basically, Homer and Virgil are everywhere. You can't escape them. You can't escape them. Classics exactly. is just everywhere. Classics yeah, is everywhere. it's the most it's important just... subject. Indeed, I think that's the ultimate conclusion. Something we already knew, but we've we've confirmed. <laughs> yes, we've just confirmed that. Yeah.